this morning. So hear the word of the Lord as I read from the beginning to the end of the chapter. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you'll understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the strange woman with her seductive words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have delighted to pour out your wisdom to us, that you have revealed yourself in time, in history, in creation, in your Son, and in your written word. Lord, help us to not despise your written word and the preaching of it, but to test it, to listen intently to it, to hold fast what is good. Lord, we ask that you would grow us in wisdom today. In Jesus' name, amen. The question that Proverbs 2 poses to us is, how much should we value wisdom? With what value should we place on wisdom and therefore pursue it in light of that? You might not know the name James W. Marshall, but he unintentionally became one of the most significant figures in American history, and especially in the Western expansion of the U.S., because he made a discovery on one day in January 24th, 1848, that changed the landscape of the development of America. So he was going about his business as a miner at Sutter's Mill in Coloma, California on January 24th, 1848, when he literally did what we would all love to do on a day of work. He struck gold. He was mining for gold and he found some. And the initial discovery was only a modest amount, but the word that spread about what he found was anything but modest. It was grandiose. It was a rags to riches story. It was the American dream uh, giving rise and birth in people's minds and hearts as they thought about, if only I could find what James W. Marshall found. And so as the word of that discovery got out and as it spread rapidly, it ignited a flurry of mass migration in the central United States, in the eastern United States, and eventually even around the globe. So what families would do when they heard this story of what James W. Marshall discovered and how it changed his life, they abandoned their crops, they packed up their wagons, and they made the treacherous journey west toward California with the prospect of finding gold and experiencing the same thing that James W. Marshall did, rags to riches overnight. 
Well, we now know this as the California gold rush of 1849. It became, for many, the real-life adventure of being a treasure hunter, something you could only read about in a Robert Louis Stevenson novel, Minus the Pirates, was their real-life adventure. And for those who are caught up in the California gold rush, they had discovered the treasure map, and they would stop at nothing to get to that X that now marked the spot of where the treasure was buried. And what drove them was the value that they placed on this treasure and all the blessings that it promised to them. Knowing the value of it and the blessings that it offered, it ignited in people a grit, a determination, and a drive to stop at nothing until they got that for themselves. Well, where this relates to our passage for today is that Proverbs 2 assumes that we know something of the value of rare, precious, and beautiful metals like gold. That we've heard about them. We've maybe seen them from afar or watched them on TV. And Proverbs 2 also assumes that we know something of the great stories and legends of treasure hunters. And so in light of that, Proverbs 2 says, the wisdom of God and the wisdom that comes from his word is immeasurably more valuable than all those precious, beautiful metals that you can think of. And therefore, we should seek it and search for it with all that much more diligence and determination because nothing is more valuable than this. So in other words, Proverbs 2 is calling you to be a treasure hunter for wisdom. So what we're going to do is we take that theme and run it through Proverbs 2 and see what it teaches us about this pursuit and search for wisdom as if for hidden treasure. So as treasure hunters for wisdom, we must first know where we can find wisdom. If you've ever discovered a treasure map, or you know someone who has, you know that all treasure maps have the same characteristics and qualities. They all have one particular spot on each of those maps. There's always an X that marks the spot that says this is where the treasure is found. So verse one and verse six of chapter two are the X marks the spot of where wisdom can be found. Listen to verse one. My son, remember the the context of Proverbs, the format of Proverbs is as if we're sitting in an Israelite living room listening to parents, particularly a father, teaching their son all the wisdom that they need to face, all the variety and complexity of life. He says this, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. And then jump down to verse six. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now, now first reading, when you take verse one and verse six, it sounds like there's two different sources of wisdom. There's two different X's on the treasure map of wisdom that Proverbs is giving us. One is the father speaking to his son, and then the other is the Lord who gives wisdom. But there's really one source where we can find wisdom, and it happens to be flowing to the son through one particular channel. The father here is merely fulfilling his role as the mouthpiece of the source of all wisdom. So every Israelite parent was to consider themselves like a prophet in their own home toward their children. And their role as parents was the same as that of a role of a prophet to the nation of Israel. They spoke the word of the Lord, nothing more and nothing less. Think of Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four to seven. This is something that was at the heart and center of Israel's kind of confession and understanding of their responsibility. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts, parents. You shall teach them diligently to your children. The parents were 
the faithful mouthpieces, the Lord was the source of wisdom. So what this teaches us is something we already know, but we always need to be freshly reminded about. One of the marks of wisdom is that you know that you need to be reminded of things constantly, even simple things. The X that marks the spot where wisdom can be found is the word of God. Because the source of all wisdom in his grace and kindness delights to speak and make his wisdom known. One of the things that marks the character of God is that he is like a fountain that delights to overflow in what he has and share with others. He has wisdom and he delights to overflow with that wisdom. He has grace and he delights to overflow with that grace. And the picture here of a father speaking to a son is even a parable of how God speaks to us. Every time a parent stoops down to the level of their child, gets down on, on, their, on their level to look eye to eye with them, every time a, a parent seeks to accommodate their language to the ability of their child to understand, it's a living parable of how God the Father graciously stoops down to communicate to us, to speak to us, and make himself known to us. And the reason that the word of God is the place where the treasure of wisdom can be found is because the word of God is marked by the character of its author. I think one of the principal points of the fact that we believe that this is not just any mere word, this is the inspired word of God, is that it bears the mark of the character of its author. And we, we know something of that in our common experience. Think of it. When you study a particular artist, let's say, when you look at their portfolio of paintings, you start to notice that each painting, though unique, bears certain characteristics and qualities about it that, that reveal something about the artist who painted it. So think about Rembrandt, for example. A painting by Rembrandt is noted for a particular method, how he used light and, and shading in his paintings, and is noted for a particular style. He was the kind of on the frontier and the master of the portrait painting and the historical setting painting. And so the more you get to know Rembrandt by studying his paintings, you can look at a painting, not even knowing that it's a Rembrandt, and in studying it and seeing some of its qualities and characteristics, you can say, that has the mark of Rembrandt all over it because the artist pours something of himself into what he makes. Well, so it is with God's word. The fingerprints of God's wisdom mark every page of scripture. Think about the, the harmony of the whole grand story of redemption in all of its complexity and vastness and diversity. Yet in its harmony, it tells us something of God's wisdom. The unexpected and shocking way that the gospel plays out. The fact that a king comes born in a manger, humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's our king and that's our salvation, a king on a cross dying in the place of criminals. When the scripture gives insight into the human heart and the human condition and reveals things and shows things that only God could see, it all collectively communicates that God has breathed his wisdom into his books. His fingerprint is all over scripture, which means that to neglect this book is a great act of foolishness. But to take up and read this book is to unlock the treasure storehouse of wisdom. To put it another way, either foolishness will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from foolishness. And also another reason why the word of God is the place where wisdom can be found is because the word of God has supernatural power to shape the reader and the character, right? to shape the reader and listener into the character of the one who authored it. 
So not only does God's character mark the pages of his book, but when we read it and listen to it, it actually has power to shape the reader and listener into the character of the one who authored it. Listen to how David in Psalm 19 describes the formative character-shaping power of the word of God. This is Psalm 19, seven and eight. He says this, the law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. What does it do? It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Therefore, what does it do? It rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Therefore, what does it do? It enlightens the eyes. In our common experience, we know something of the the formative power of words. For example, you can be having a great day. Things are going sweet. The, The sun is shining. The rain's gone. And then someone delivers bad news. Someone gives a harsh, cutting word. And the good day turns into a bad day. The word has power to form our perspective and change our frame of heart. Or inversely, we're having a bad day, but then suddenly someone delivers good news. There's a word of encouragement. Someone speaks a very edifying word and our spirits are lifted. Our hearts are revived. That's why Proverbs 18:21 says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. God who speaks words of power has in an analogous way designed us with words that have a type of power and effect to them. But it's only a faint analogy because when we come to God's word in a posture, like Proverbs says, of the fear of the Lord, in reverence toward him and reliance on him, the spirit of wisdom who originally authored that word begins to take that word and replicate its message in our heart and our lives, begins to shape our character into the character of the author who made it, into the character of the one who the story is all about. This is why David, after extolling the formative power of God's word, draws this conclusion. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Psalm 19:10. Commenting on this verse, Charles Spurgeon said, men speak of solid gold, but what is so solid as solid truth? For the love of gold, pleasure is forsaken, ease renounced, and life endangered. Shall we not be ready to do as much for the gold of truth? And what was ironic is Spurgeon was commenting on the California gold rush that he was hearing about all the way in England when he spoke of this passage. It is something we should seek as if for hidden treasure. In the next place, as treasure hunters for wisdom, we must know how we can find wisdom. Not only where it's found, but how we can find it. So look at verses one to four with me and notice the various verbs that Solomon uses and kind of stacks on top of one another. He said, my son, if you receive my words, you treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it, as for hidden treasures. These are not lazy, passive, idle verbs. These verbs are full of vim and vigor, pulsating with activity and liveliness. If these verbs were an animal kids, they would not be a turtle or a sloth. They would be a cheetah or a jaguar. These verbs are moving, they're active, they're fast. There's an an energy and a dynamism in these words. Because when you think of a treasure hunter, 
What do you think of? You think of someone who travels far, who sleeps little, and who digs much, laboring industriously. A A lazy, idle treasure hunter is an oxymoron or a poor person at that. So one of the implications of these lively verbs that is used is that wisdom is found by those who pursue it diligently. Diligently is a word that should mark and define treasure hunters for wisdom. Why is this? Well, it's because wisdom is not our default setting. Wisdom is not like the software update on your phone that you can just set it to automatically update while you sleep at night. Wisdom is not something you arrive at by driving in neutral or drifting in life. That is not how wisdom works. Foolishness is native to us. Wisdom is foreign to us initially. So our pursuit of wisdom, in many ways, is like the cultivation of a garden or the the manicuring and maintaining of a yard. So when we first purchased our home about five years ago, the builder who had made it had put in a number of landscaping sections right at the end, right before kind of showing the house and, and seeing it. And when you initially walk up, it looks pristine, it looks beautiful, it's just you know, wonderfully set there, all in perfect manicured order. But I quickly realized that in South Florida, if you do nothing, even for a very short period of time, all sorts of things happen that you don't want to happen and all sorts of things grow that you do not want to grow. And your yard and your plants and your palm trees and palm branches quickly turn into an overwhelming, untamable jungle. It's as if Florida is yearning to be turned back into an untamed, chaotic wilderness. And so to maintain it, and even further, to cultivate the beauty that's there, you must pull and cut and trim and prune and bear the, the, the heat in summer and all of that regularly. Well, likewise, if you neglect your mind, if you ignore your heart, if you just kind of leave your will to run as it would in neutral, Something will surely grow, but it will not be the growth of wisdom. It will be the growth of foolishness and error. Wisdom is found by those who pursue it diligently. But we have to clarify something here. This diligence that the author calls us to is not the diligence of self-sufficiency. It's not the diligence of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Wisdom helps those who helps themselves. That's not the diligence that's being talked about here. One of the paradoxes of wisdom and our pursuit of it is that all of our effort, all of our energy in pursuing wisdom is actually the grace of God at work in us prior to our working to pursue wisdom. It's God at work in us, bringing us closer toward him and deeper into his wisdom. Whenever we work, we find that God was already prior at work in us. He always precedes our working. So it's not so much that we are pursuing wisdom as the God of wisdom is pursuing us. The hound of heavenly wisdom is after us. So the Apostle Paul, he stated the paradox this way in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Speaking about the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So when the grace of God comes to us, what, what does it look like? What happens? Well, it comes in power And it demonstrates itself in energizing our spiritual life with lively, vigorous, active verbs like earnestness and inclining and diligence and treasuring and seeking. That's what the grace of God looks like when it comes to us. 
So pursue it diligently. Another implication of these verses is that wisdom is found by those who pursue it wholeheartedly. Not just diligently, but wholeheartedly. So notice that in verses one to four, the father's counsel to the son appeals to every part of his being, every aspect of his personality and identity. So verse one, he appeals to his desires and values. Treasure my commandments, treasure them. In verse two, he appeals to his ears and heart. Incline your ears, or make your ears attentive and incline your heart. And then verse three, he appeals to his voice. Call out for insight. And then finally, in verse four, he appeals to his will and energy. Seek it, search for it, energize your will toward it. He's kind of covering the whole of his human person and personality. So one of the implications of this is that we should pursue wisdom wholeheartedly. Growth in wisdom is a full-time, whole-person calling. And to quote Mike Bruce, part-timers and half-harders need not apply. God is interested, God is not interested in having us dabble in wisdom. There's, he doesn't lay out kind of an a la carte and say, you know, just take whatever you like and leave what you don't. A little wisdom here, a little wisdom there. God is after all of us. He's after all of us. He is in the business of total, not partial renovations when it comes to taking fools and making them wise. So in his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis put it like this, very helpful words. It is not so much of our time and so much of our attention that God demands. It is not even all our time and all our attention that God demands. It is all of us that God demands. It is ourselves. For each of us, John the Baptist's words are true. He must increase and I must decrease. What cannot be admitted What must exist only as an undefeated but daily resisted enemy is the idea of something that is our own, some area in which we are not in school, on which God has no claim, for he claims all. Because he is love and must bless, he cannot bless us unless he has us, all of us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death and foolishness. Therefore, in love, God claims all. There's no bargaining with him. Wholehearted pursuit of wisdom because God is after the whole of us. So one of the reasons that Proverbs, when you read it, covers such a vast array of subjects is not just because that's part of the nature of life, that there's a variety and complexity of life. Part of the reason that Proverbs covers such a vast array of subjects is because God is after transforming all of us for all of life. He wants us to submit our time to him, our relationships, our wallet, our tongue, everything. And he says, when you submit that to me, I will fill it with my wisdom. Now we must admit one of our issues in pursuing wisdom is that we're we're kind of fragmented and a little fractured in how we pursue wisdom. We know that there are some areas where we, we, we need wisdom. We readily admit it, we own up to it, and we pursue it. But then there are some areas where we're not so inclined to make such admissions. There are some areas where we put up no, press, no trespassing signs or no help wanted signs. Well, I will tell you, God has a way of kindly, but not always gently removing such signs. So one of the things you need to ask yourself, even in this series or just in the Christian life in general, is where am I inclined to put up no trespassing signs or no help wanted signs? Because that is, I tell you, the particular area where God is going to go after. Well, finally, as treasure hunters for wisdom, we must know the value that wisdom holds. We must know the value that wisdom holds. What what drove people in 1849 to the California gold rush, which required 
much sacrifice. If you ever read some of the stories, there was great sacrifice and not always gold at the end of the tunnel. It was treacherous travel. It was painstaking labor. What motivated them was the value of gold and all that came with it, all the promise that held out to them. So gold had this inherent value, right? Because it's, it's rare, it's beautiful, it's precious. But gold also had accompanying value because once found, it brought other things with it. Financial prosperity, financial security, economic stability. It brought ease of life. So many people looked at their farms and you know, all the labor that they had to put into it and the worry about famine and droughts and all these different things. And they said, oh, how much easier would it be if I could find gold? And so they abandoned the plains, the farms, and went after it because of the value of gold. So it is with that knowledge of that value of gold that fueled them in a search for it. In a similar way, the rest of Proverbs 2, the father is laying out for his son all the accompanying value of wisdom so that he might be motivated to diligently and wholeheartedly pursue it. He's saying, look at this precious treasure of wisdom and all that it offers you. Pursue it diligently and wholeheartedly. So the father is going to describe for his son four aspects of the value of wisdom, as if he's, he's holding it up and turning it in his different facets to show how valuable it is. So I'm just going to mention these four briefly because we're going we're to go over them in our series and then just comment on them briefly as well. So why should we value wisdom? Because it deepens our knowledge of God. So look at Proverbs 2.5. The first kind of then statement of if you pursue these things this way is then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So one of the fundamental things we need to understand about wisdom is that wisdom is not a material you can touch. It's not even a set of facts that you memorize and recite. It's not even a philosophy that you study primarily. Wisdom, according to the Bible, is fundamentally and primarily a person that we relate to a person who we are in covenant with, a person that we have a relationship with. So Proverbs 13.20 says this, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. This is never more true than when we walk in relationship with God in Christ by the power of the Spirit. We walk with the God of all wisdom, therefore we become wise. When we walk into a relationship with God and walk with him in life, we enter into a cycle of wisdom that goes something like this. The more we walk with God, or you could say the more we abide in Christ, the more we grow in wisdom. And the more we grow in wisdom, the more we come to know of the infinite, unfathomable wisdom of God. And then we grow in wisdom. And then as we grow in wisdom, the cycle continues to go on and on and on. So we value wisdom because it deepens our knowledge of God. Secondly, we should value wisdom because it sharpens our moral senses. It sharpens our moral senses. Look at Proverbs 2, 9 to 11. So it gives another benefit of wisdom here. He says, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. So he's, he's kind of piling up these, these terminologies that are, are moral in nature, saying this wisdom will sharpen and calibrate your moral senses. Verse 10, for wisdom will come into your heart. Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Think how many times on a given day, a week, a month, you're forced to access your moral sensibilities and exercise your moral uh, evaluation and judgment. Especially in areas that don't have a directly, abundantly clear black and white solution or answer to them. Think how many times that happens. You know, you're, you're, at, you're thinking, 
Is it wise to purchase this? Would, be the, would this be the best use of my money? Is it beneficial to watch this or listen to that? They said that to me. Should I respond to what they said or should I keep my mouth shut? Is what that person said helpful or unhelpful? Should I believe them? Should I believe part of it? Should I believe none of it? And then when that person does something, how should I respond? Should I respond this way or that way? The more we sharpen our mind with the word of God, the more we dig into God's word and meditate on it, our, our conscience becomes calibrated and, and refined and sharpened by what God says there. And so the more we understand what he has revealed to us, the more we will be able to answer such intricate and complex questions that life throws at us on our day-to-day basis. Because one of the ways that God, God's word works is that it's not an encyclopedia. that you can, you can kind of flip to the back of the book and look up, okay, when they say this to me, I respond with A or B. It doesn't work like that. Wouldn't it be nice, but we don't have that, okay? But how it works is God's precepts help us develop principles. And then as we develop principles from them that are, that are timeless and, and can apply to multiple situations, that starts to develop prudence in us. And then the prudence in us takes those principles from those precepts and learns how to apply them in different situations, how to practice wisdom. That's how God's word works. It doesn't always directly tell you, like a choose-your-own-adventure story, if A, then go to page you know, 34 or something like that. But it sharpens your mind, precept, principle, prudence, practice, kind of like the train of wisdom moving along in our life. That's how it works. Well, a third reason we should value wisdom is because it guards our passions. It guards our passions. Look at Proverbs 2, 16 and 17. So he's speaking particularly to his son, and, and young men are known for their youthful passions. So he says this, so you will be delivered by wisdom from the forbidden woman, from the strange woman with her seductive words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. One of the things he's saying about wisdom is wisdom is like the governor on a golf cart or go-kart. I don't know if you've ever gone go-karting or, or golf karting, but there's this mechanical device that's placed near the engine or, or one of the, I'm not a mechanic, okay? It's, it's somewhere under there near the engine. And what it does is when you try to floor that gas pedal, this governor jumps in when the RPMs get to such a level to actually stop it from going too fast because it knows that there are people like me who like to drive really fast on golf carts or golf courses or all those places. What it's meant to do is restrain the desire you would have to go at dangerous and reckless speeds. It's it's for everyone else's protection. What he's saying is wisdom comes, what it does, it, it becomes a regulator on our desires and impulses and passions, which at times we come to discover that not all desires and impulses and passions are a good thing. We have many of them, but not all of them are good. I mean, I'm sure all of you could recount times where Someone said something, and right away, impulsively, you felt that you had to say something, and you said that thing, and you wished you had not said that thing. You wished you could have restrained that impulse. It always makes me think about, um, I think it's Anne of Green Gables, who was always known for impulsively saying things, and she said, oh, Marilla, if you only knew the things I wanted to say and didn't, you'd be so proud of me. (laughs) Well, wisdom is like that restraint on our impulses, passions, and desires. And we're going to get more in chapters 5 to 7 especially about this, this strange woman and her seductive words. But suffice it to say, she is real and she's representative. She's both literal and symbolic. She kind of functions on two levels. And on the symbolic level, this woman represents anyone or anything in this world that would appeal to our passions and impulses and pleasures in order to draw us away from the Lord. 
That's what this seductive woman with her strange, or the strange woman with her seductive words represents. And so wisdom acts like a governor, teaching us that not all desires are good things and not all impulses should be acted on. It's, it helps us to ready fire aim, not fire ready aim, as it were. Well, finally, wisdom is valuable because it guides our path. So look at Proverbs 2.20. It says this, so you will walk in the way of the good. If you have wisdom, son, you will walk in the good way and you will keep to the paths of the righteous. So the wisdom of God and his word is a bit like the gift that Galadriel gives to Frodo in the two towers. Maybe you've seen in the movie, maybe you read in the book, but he's sitting there waiting for his gift. And so she turns her attention to him and she says, and you ring bearer, she said, turning to Frodo. I come to you last who are not last in my thoughts, for you have prepared this. So she holds up a small crystal file. It glittered as she moved it and rays of white light sprang from her hand. So in this file, she said, is caught the light of a rendil star set amid the waters of my fountain. It will shine still brighter when night is about you. And here's what she says to him. May it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. That's how God's wisdom acts. Think about this people, the Israelites. When they traveled and traveled, they did much. There's no city lights. There's no street lights. There's no car lights. There's no lights, period, unless you carry with you a lantern. Your word is like a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's how God's wisdom works. When we walk through a world that is morally distorted, what is there to guide us? But the light of God's wisdom in his word. When we walk through a world that is filled with a fog of cultural confusion, evil is good, good is evil. What is there to guide us but the wisdom of God's word as a lamp for our feet and a light to our path? There's one more thing we must say about the treasure of God's wisdom. When it comes to seeing and knowing the immeasurable treasure of God's wisdom, as Christians, we stand in a very privileged position. We stand on this side of history, on this side of the cross, and we are able to see something clearly that Old Testament saints only wished they could see and saw faintly and dimly and far off. In a short but potent sentence, Colossians 2.3 tells us this about the deep insight we have into the wisdom of God. Colossians 2.3, Paul says this, in Christ, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is the key that unlocks truly the treasure chest of God's wisdom. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what Paul is saying there is he's, he's taking all that has been said about wisdom running through the thread of the Old Testament, especially Proverbs, and all of humanity's desire to seek and find wisdom as the philosopher sought it. And he's saying, in the person and work of Christ, wisdom shines most brightly and is displayed most beautifully. There is no more potent, beautiful display of God's wisdom than in the incarnate Son of God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Christ, the wisdom of God's love, which covers a multitude of sins, is displayed in its purest form when the Father did not spare his own Son, but graciously gave him up for us all. So when we tap into and walk in that wisdom, when Christ becomes our treasure of wisdom, we actually grow more and deeper into the wisdom of what it looks like to love others. The wisdom of God's generosity and how he gives and shares and overflows and can never be outdone in doing that shines the brightest and the most clear in Christ who was rich 
yet for our sakes became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. So when we make Christ our treasure, we grow in the wisdom of generosity. And so it is only when we lay hold of Christ as our treasure that we truly find the key that unlocks the treasure chest of God's wisdom. Let's pray.